Welcome to this edition of the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Just Security's Managing Editor, John Reed. And I'm joined today by uh, Just Security Editorial Board member, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School, and former State Department Legal Advisor, Harold Coe. Harold, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, John. Good to be with you. Good, good. Is enough is considering the circumstances we're speaking about. We're going to be talking about uh, Trump v. Hawaii and the, uh, the, the travel ban case today. And specifically, I mean, most people by now know the details of it, that the court uh, said the ban was going to be upheld, saying that uh, it might be motivated by uh, discriminatory animus. But uh, if you can come up with a plausible basis for it, then uh, Trump administration, you can do this. Correct me if I'm wrong in, in kind of distilling it down that quickly and and, and dirtily, Harold. But um, it seems to be that's the, the basis. Yeah, I mean, essentially, the court um, turned a blind eye to discrimination that everyone could see um, and said that um, if a president does something that could have been legitimate, uh in a different circumstance, you just ignore the discrimination that's right in front of your eyes. And, um, you know, that's uh, a a ludicrous way to proceed. And I thought the most uh, outrageous thing was when Justice Sotomayor said, this reminds me of the Japanese internment. Chief Justice Roberts says, Korematsu has nothing to do with the Japanese, with with the travel ban case. Um, That's just flat out wrong, and um, um, he should be called on it. And you touched on that in, in, in an article you wrote for Just Security earlier this week. Can you explain that a little bit more about, you know, how he can, how, how on earth can he claim that one case that was, you know, the, the Japanese internment case was, was the, the government said that for national security purposes, we need to round up all these Japanese Americans and intern them. Um, but we don't, that it didn't really present any specific evidence or anything like that. Just said you belong to a specific ethnic group. So there you go. That's enough to warrant your, uh, internment. Um, how did he even, how could he even try to, to say that these two weren't, weren't connected? Well, he basically made two points. One was that, um, the travel ban had gone through three different iterations. Um, and so that by the end, Um, It was uh, just a way in which certain individuals were prevented from entering. But, um, you know, it had a design defect, which is that it was uh, a Muslim ban. No matter how much lipstick you put on that pig, it's still a Muslim ban. And all of the subsequent meetings that led to its adjustment were directed um, to follow the exact same template. So... It didn't get rid of the discrimination that infected the whole process from the very beginning. Uh, the second way that he dealt with it was to say that um, what's going on here is a legitimate national security threat. But what was really going on was a group stereotype. Um, you know, in this country, Dr. King told us long ago, we judge people based on the content of their individual character, not based on uh, presumptions that they're terrorists or presumptions that they're dangerous to the country because of the color of their skin or who they worship or what country they're from. And um, to make this kind of grossly overbroad stereotype and then attach national security considerations to it is exactly what um, courts need to probe behind and what Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion, which, which is shameful, 
uh, did was to uh, just bow to that stereotype as if it was a legitimate national security objection. And now, you said also in the same article that, uh, that this outcome may have been predictable, but that it decides less than it actually symbolizes. And you, you, you provided three, three reasons for that. Um, can you dive in there and explain that a little bit? Yeah, so first of all, um, it was a misreading of a particular statute on suspension of entry, 28, uh, 8 U.S.C. 1182F. So um, if Congress were to change hands this fall, um, they could simply change or adjust that to make it clear that they don't agree that it should be used so broadly. Or they could decide not to fund the travel ban. Um, which is a use of their appropriation power. Uh, obviously, that turns on who's in control of the Congress. But as November 2018 approaches, it looks like at least one House will change hands. Secondly, there's a long history of litigants um, challenging U.S. Supreme Court results in other courts. Uh, this is the equivalent of what happens in Europe. Um, you know, the rulings of the British House of Lords are no longer the last word. Um, litigants uh, appeal them to courts in Luxembourg or in um, Strasbourg. Um, many years ago, the Haitian refugees lost at the Supreme Court, but there were many lawsuits on the same issue about extraterritorial seizure of refugees that led to the reversal of that precedent in other courts. Third, um, as part of this whole process, is the <laughs> fact that every individual who's opposed the travel ban has its own capacity to test it. Um, so there's an elaborate system of waivers that are offered by the um, proclamation. Um, most knowledgeable observers think it's a sham and that you can't actually get a waiver. Um, but the case continues. All, all the court held was that they don't get a preliminary injunction. So it goes back to the lower courts where everybody who thinks they deserve a waiver uh, because they're a student or because of some particular circumstance or because they have a relative can go back in and try to challenge it again. So um, if the courts end up upholding this, um, then uh, we will actually have a travel ban that's riddled with exceptions, and it may turn out to be essentially a dead letter. So for these three reasons, legislative reversibility, um, the fact that the issue can be relitigated in many other ways, and uh, the um, uh, fact that the lower courts can um, flesh out the scope of the exceptions, uh, I don't think that the case decided as much as it looks like at first glance. Now, say, going back to your point then about it being symbolic, there, there's a, you, you also wrote that essentially, we can expect the administration soon to seek judicial validation of these other national security masquerades. And you were referring to a number of different issues that uh, the Trump administration wants to, to, to take up from, you know, it, let's see, you mentioned... Emergency action under the Defense Production Act and Section 202 of the Federal Power Act to require power grid operators to make stop-loss purchases from failing coal plants. Uh, you said, you know, they've claimed national security justifications for expelling transgender individuals from the military. 
Uh, there, are, there are so many different ways that this administration may use the national security justification or abuse the national security of just, justification. Uh, that seems to be a major issue. How does that, I mean, how will that play out for, going forward? How do, we, how do we check that in this era? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to push judges to look past the um, uh, the assertion of national security arguments to the actual national security justification and to actually look at the evidence. Uh, in the travel ban case, it was a remarkable thing. In 15 months, no government official was willing to swear an affidavit saying that there was a legitimate national security purpose. And that's because there wasn't any. They couldn't find anyone who would do it. Now, the other thing is not just the absence of a national security justification for these actions, um, but the, the absence of national security process. Everybody knows that the travel ban was done without the major cabinet secretaries even knowing about it. Um, the, the Secretary of State didn't know about it. The Secretary of Defense didn't know about it. Homeland Security was completely unprepared. We know because of Sally Yates' actions that the Justice Department was never even asked whether they would defend the travel ban uh, because she later said that they wouldn't. Now, if the president did not seek the advice of these experts in making the decision, how can he later invoke their expertise as the reason to defer to the decision. Um, it's a, that's what uh, Justice Sotomayor correctly called a national security masquerade. And we need to look behind these national security masquerades. So for this president, uh, I'm sorry for the pun, but he now sees national security as his trump card. Yeah. And he will pull it out. But... Um, I think we have to determine whether, in fact, what he's pulling out is a joker rather than a, than a real national security concern. And the, 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 the White House never actually produced any evidence behind the claim that it had conducted a, a thorough review and that the ban was based on a thorough national security review that involved all the cabinet officials, correct? That's correct. And um, the brief that um, we filed for the Yale Law School Rule of Law Clinic on behalf of 52 former national security officials went through this chapter and verse. Um, they kept changing the rationale for the order. They kept putting countries on and off the list. Uh, but most important, they never explained why the existing process of individualized vetting wasn't sufficient to protect our national security. Remember that Trump called for extreme vetting. What he never realizes is that's exactly what we already had, exactly. a system of extreme vetting. But it's individualized vetting. It's not based on group stereotype. When you substitute group stereotype, it's going to be inevitably over and under inclusive. And that's what this was. Anyway, this was a horrible decision. And in that respect, very similar to Korematsu. But the way that I close the piece is, Korematsu was overruled as illegitimate in the court of public opinion decades ago. You know, for the, the Roberts court to say it's overruled was a, a sort of a sop, um, in, in fact, almost insulting. Um, it's a way of trying to get some credit for doing something when, in fact, uh, the way that it could have paid tribute to uh, 
the rejection of Korematsu was to strike down the travel ban. Um, but uh, what it tells us is it's possible for a bad decision to be overruled in the court of public opinion by actions of all of these other players. Um, and that's exactly what needs to happen. I think the broader lesson here is Donald Trump doesn't own this process and neither does the Roberts court. Uh, obviously, uh, they have special position in terms of uh, vindicating claims, but if they fail, as they've both done here, uh, it's up to the rest of us, uh, the community of readership of blogs like Just Security to step up and demand that things be done right. Harold, I know you have to go really quickly. Did you have you seen the Roberts uh, issued a response to, or, uh, to to Breyer's discussion of the waivers issue? Did you get a chance to 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 read that? Uh, what and and what is your read of his of his response to Breyer? Well, uh, you know, um, he would love the waivers to work because uh, then it, it gives them an excuse for upholding an outrageously overbroad ban. But um, what I think Breyer was really saying is uh, this is an issue that now proceeds to the lower courts. Um, you know, what? so let's read Robert's opinion narrowly. It, they're not going to enjoin everything. But in the proceedings that continue below, all kinds of different plaintiffs can say, we're entitled to a waiver, how come we didn't get it? And um, the government's gonna have to figure out or create an apparatus to give those waivers. Uh, you've already had a uh, blog post on Just Security that shows that these waivers are essentially a joke. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent that all appearances are they are a sham. If they don't want to make them a sham, the U.S. government is going to have to pour a lot of resources into actually giving people waivers and testing individual cases. In other words, they're going to have to start punching holes into their overbroad ban. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it starts looking like Swiss cheese, then there's not much of a ban. And at which point um, the victory is more symbolic than it is real. And, and do you have a, a minute to, to to quickly recap what the practical effect of the kind of the the outside the overseas international litigation that you mentioned also as your second point um, when you were saying that it, it decides less than it uh, it actually symbolizes what can it, what is what will the practical effect of overseas rulings be whether those be countries or or, or international organizations such as companies and universities who uh, interact with the United States and overseas people, people from, from countries that are affected by the travel ban? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you want to point to the, the greatest failure and ignorance of Trump, it's the belief that the United States controls things in this world as opposed to the world being interdependent. So um, whether the travel ban is carried out or not turns on the cooperation of foreign airlines. Um, if this travel ban violates international human rights law, uh, the foreign countries may not respect the rulings. Um, we've already had cases in universities where students who were supposedly barred from getting their visas still completed their degrees by doing online education. Uh, you could imagine people who are not being allowed in uh, to, the, to Silicon Valley to go to WeWork sites in London 
and do their work and provide their labor from there. Um, so there are both technical workarounds and other kinds of workarounds. Um, in the recent litigation over the black sites and other kinds of things, um, it was very clear that anyone who supports uh, an illegal activity by the United States um, will face liability in these international tribunals, which is one reason why they're not going to just go along and do it because Donald Trump says uh, to do it. And this is not a person who's been respectful of these allies in other kinds of relationships. He seems to be more friendly with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin uh, than he is with our own allies. I mean, after all, he called Canada a national security right. threat. So all of this is relevant to the issue. Do we take it seriously when he said there is a national security threat? Um, do we think that he's in fact creating national security threats? And when he gets a sign off from his own court, does that actually give him carte blanche to operate worldwide on this basis? Or does he in fact need the sign off of other courts who aren't going to be so compliant or going to go along so easily? Harold, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you, John. My guest now is Christina Rodriguez. She is the Leighton Homer Serbeck Professor of Law at Yale Law School. And we are uh, talking about this week's um, Supreme Court ruling in the travel ban case. Christina, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, you wrote a, uh, a, a, an article on Just Security earlier this week where one of the points that you brought up, you wrote it along with um, Adam Cox and uh, my boss, uh, Ryan Goodman, one of the points that you guys brought up in that article was that uh, that that here the 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 court was relying on and really embraced what's called the plenary power doctrine, and as you wrote, it purports to give enormous deference to political branches on immigration policy on immigration when it comes to immigration policy. Can you elaborate on that and explain for perhaps for our readers who aren't as familiar with this what what the plenary power doctrine is? And uh, then you also mentioned this is different than previous cases where that's been applied. Uh, and why is this different? There's a lot of debate about what exactly the plenary power doctrine is, but I think that everyone agrees that it's an approach to judicial review of immigration decisions that's highly deferential to the political branches, to Congress and the executive. The, the strongest version of the plenary power would suggest that the Constitution doesn't apply at all to screening decisions that the uh, executive branch makes or that Congress enacts in the law. And that has never actually been the law that the court has articulated, and it's not even what the court says in Hawaii versus Trump. The uh, plural or the majority does seem to suggest that the Constitution might apply, it's just that there's nothing the court can do about it in this instance. So that's the somewhat softer version of the plenary power, that there's limited judicial review of immigration decisions because they're closely connected to national security and foreign affairs determinations that aren't within the province of the judiciary. And then what that means is that when someone alleges that an immigration law is uh, unconstitutional, uh, the courts are going to apply a form of rational basis review. 
What's different about what the court did in Hawaii versus Trump from past decisions is that it suggested that an action taken by the executive branch that might otherwise be unconstitutional could still be valid or at least not subject to judicially to judicial overturning uh, if there was a facially plausible reason for it. In the past, uh, the court hasn't actually upheld an immigration law um, that violates the Constitution in a way that the court understood the Constitution at the time of question. So um, a lot of the examples that are used to show that the Constitution doesn't apply are actually instances where the court uh, would have held the government's actions to be constitutional even outside of the immigration context. And so it has up to this point been unclear what would happen in a circumstance where there seemed to be a pretty clear constitutional problem and yet also a plausible national security justification. And in this case, the court said that the plausibility in its view of the national security reasons for the, the executive order meant that whatever the, the motives were, uh, were, were not relevant. And again, this was a case where, where we had the president on numerous, numerous occasions basically indicating that this ban would be about keeping Muslims out of the country. And then to justify it, they claimed that there was a, essentially a, a cabinet-level national security review saying that this was imperative to put into place um, okay. without really backing it up. Right. So there's, you know, the, the government forward with lots of um, evidence about the review process that happened. It was a little bit post hoc. It took until the third executive order uh, to, to get all the ducks in a row, which is itself a sign that the original motivation was not this need for uh, ensuring that countries were adequately screening people seeking entry to the United States. And I wouldn't say that it's the case that the different cabinets, cabinet secretaries and um, executive departments that didn't engage in some kind of worldwide review and make colorable claims about the absence of security protections in the countries that were listed. It's just that that happened uh, alongside what was, I think, to, as Justice Sotomayor puts it, a reasonable observer, a clear discriminatory motive to try to keep Muslims out of the country uh, to the extent that uh, some kind of other excuse could be made to do that. And so then, then switching gears a little bit off of that, what are the implications for future immigrants' rights cases? Um, you know, you wrote that it's too soon to assume that these that the the same plenary powers doctrine will be brought to bear on those cases. And we've seen a lot of people worrying about this, that this is going to be kind of a new template going forward. Why is it too soon to assume that? And which kind of cases? So the, this case deals with the question of uh, immigration control and who is permitted to enter the United States and the authority the government exercises to prevent people from entering the United States, to exclude them. And the, the cases that the court cited to support that, Kerry versus Din, uh, the Mandel case, are also cases that were about the government's power to exclude people from entering. You can distinguish those cases from cases that involve how the government treats immigrants once they're here, whether it's in deportation proceedings or in, in other contexts that have nothing to do with immigration control. And so one way of limiting this opinion would be to instances in which the government is actually just preventing people from coming in in, in the first instance. The, the challenge, of course, is how 
how you keep a bright line between that and instances where the government is regulating immigrants more generally. The, the most relevant and most difficult example is the way the government treats people at the border. Uh, which is obviously an ongoing issue and crisis at the moment. And does the government's authority to exclude people mean that when it's making policy at the border or enforcing the law at the border, uh, that it has relative freer reign? And, and I think that... Um, I don't know if it was the same day or the day after the Supreme Court issued the travel ban decision, the district court in San Diego issued an order applying the due process clause and saying the way the government was treating separated families was a clear constitutional problem in ordering the government to take quick steps to, to reunite families. And that, I think, um, is eminently distinguishable from the travel ban case because it involves circumstances where the government is actually in custody of and in control of people um, and not a decision to exclude people before they've even come into the United States. I think the other potential key distinction between the Hawaii versus Trump and other kinds of cases that involve immigrant, immigrants' rights is that the Establishment Clause claim, like an equal protection claim, involves questions of motive. And so the, the court says that we can't acquire that that far into the motive of the of the president here, as long as there's a facially legitimate, bona fide reason, any unconstitutional motivation is not going to lead to an invalidation of the law by the court because um, you could have a plausible justification for it. That's a different kind of analysis than uh, is the government's detention violating the substantive process, due process rights of the uh, individuals who they're detaining? Is the government failing to go through the requisite procedures before denying someone a liberty interest? A motive is immaterial there. Uh, you have a stark violation of a right and, and or not, and the question is, um, for the court, is whether that violation has occurred, not what the government was thinking when it uh, took the step that it took. And then kind of wrapping all that up, um, you also mentioned this is only only applies to immigration um, policies. Um, can you talk a little bit more why that's important? So I think that, for, for one, just as a strategic matter, courts are very adept at distinguishing cases based on the facts. And much of the court's reasoning behind the the very deferential standard that it erected had to do with the juxtaposition of immigration and national security. And that's kind of a unique combination of considerations that counsel in favor of executive deference. And I don't think that same combination applies when you're talking about ordinary detention decisions in the policing context or other kinds of uh, government coercion outside of the policing of the sovereign boundaries of the United States. Uh, and so even if you could say conceptually that whenever there's a public order justification for the government's action, we should defer um, that that could run through not just immigration cases, but other kinds of cases where the government engages in policing to protect public safety risks, um, there it, it's poss very possible to distinguish between 
the sensitive kinds of foreign policy and national security judgments the government has to make at the border from the whole range of uh, custodial and uh, um, coercive kinds of decisions the government has to make when using its law enforcement power. And so uh, there's no reason to read this uh, beyond that, uh, beyond the immigration context. All of the precedents that the court cites, too, are about, at least with respect to the immigration power, are about that power to exclude at the border. And that um, that is a, a domain where uh, the courts need to steer the clearest from interfering with the executive branch or, or Congress, for that matter, if this were something that had emanated from Congress. So does that mean that we shouldn't be terribly worried about the administration starting to trot out national security excuses to justify any number of policies that may have very little to do with national security? I might still be worried uh, because I think one thing that uh, we've learned from this saga is that the uh, certain people, perhaps even the president himself, are are not that mindful of the, the Constitution. And so, at least with respect to uh, border enforcement and the treatment of immigrants, I suspect uh, that this Department of Justice will try to use this opinion as a way of expanding its power and limiting uh, judicial review. It, it should be said, too, that uh, prior Departments of Justice have made pretty strong claims about non-reviewability and these kinds of cases. So it's not as if that would be a wholly um, unorthodox decision or, or argument to make. The government tends to like to insulate itself from review. Although the government, even here, admitted that the courts could peer behind the, the justifications for the policy. It's just that in doing so, they had to be highly deferential to the reasons offered by the government for why it erected this um, executive order after the worldwide review. Um, but I, I would not, I, I would have a great deal of confidence in the lower courts in particular to, to push back against any attempt to use this opinion to expand executive power beyond what um, we understand the, the Constitution to protect. Christina, thank you so much.